Where is God when someone you love dies? What hope is there when that person is gone? In our passage today, Jesus answers both of these questions. First, that God is glorified even in sickness and death. Second, that the only hope in the face of death is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Our passage today calls us to believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. We see from the first part of this chapter that sickness and death look hopeless. Jesus' friend Lazarus was desperately sick. We see this in the first part of chapter 11. He was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, verse 1. And he had two sisters, Mary and Martha. He lived in Bethany on the east side of the Jordan, uh, I'm sorry, not in the east side of the Jordan River, but actually on the west side of the Jordan River. So there was a Bethany beyond the Jordan, and then there is a Bethany that's near Jerusalem. So Jesus and the disciples had gone to the other side of the Jordan River, and that's where they were staying and ministering because of the wrath of the Pharisees, their plots to kill Jesus, all of these kinds of things. But Lazarus and his two sisters are in Bethany, which the passage will later say is about two miles away from the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, This is the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Those of you who read this and pay close attention will say, Wait a minute, John hasn't told us about that yet. So why would he mention that this is the Mary who wipes Jesus' feet with her hair as though it's a past event when he's not going to tell us about it until chapter 12? There's a couple of different possibilities. One is that this would have been a story familiar to his audience who were aware of the different things connected with Jesus' ministry and his death. And so they would have already known it in that respect. They may have read it in another of the Gospels. Or John, as a good storyteller, is writing in such a way that he's foreshadowing what's going to happen. Because from John's perspective, both events are in the past. So it's not like he's switching up the order of the events. He's just mentioning something that we don't know yet from his book that he's going to tell us about in the next chapter to tie the two stories together. I think that's probably the best explanation for what's going on. This was not just he has a cold. This was not just a minor thing. He has a cut. It's going to recover quickly. This was a serious sickness. They summoned Jesus because they expect their brother to die. Jesus speaks to the disciples and says, This sickness is not to end in death, verse 4, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This may seem to be a contradiction based on what we saw from the scripture reading that Lazarus had in fact died. If it was not to end in death, but that God would be glorified in it, how is it that Lazarus then dies? I think the important thing is to understand Jesus says it's not going to end in death. Lazarus dies... But from the perspective of God and his power, death is a temporary state. And so Jesus is going to actually raise Lazarus from the dead. Verse 5 comments that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This was a family that he cared for deeply. But then verse 6 says a surprising thing. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now our normal response when we hear that someone might be on his deathbed is to say, I have a limited amount of time to get there, particularly if we're a long distance away. 
trying to book a flight, trying to rent a car, or whatever we need to do to get to where that person is. But not only does Jesus know it's going to take him some time to travel from where he is to the city of Bethany, he delays an additional two days. This seems very puzzling in light of the previous verse, chapter, uh, verse 5, where it says Jesus loved this family. If you loved the family, why would you delay? If they needed help, why would you wait? We'll talk more about that in a few moments. Jesus then announces that they're going to go to Judea. Verse 7, he says to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples think that this is a bad idea. The rabbi, the Jews were just going to stone you, and are you going there again? We remember that from the end of chapter 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I am the father of one. They're ready to stone him for blasphemy. That's the whole reason he had to leave. Now he's going two miles away from where the, the whole group of people who want to kill him, where they are in the city of Jerusalem. That seems like a really bad move from a human perspective. Jesus' comments are interesting as he brings in the imagery he's been using throughout these chapters. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Verse 9, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus, I think, is calling the disciples not to look at this from a human perspective, but from God's perspective. If Jesus has the power to turn, to, to multiply the fish and the bread and feed a huge crowd of people, if Jesus has eluded the grasp of the Pharisees some five or six times already in the Gospel of John, why are they afraid? Why are they looking at this from the perspective of, if we go, we're going to die? You need to look at this with spiritual sight. There is work to be done. I'm doing my Father's work. This is a sign that I must do. My time has not yet come. All of those sorts of ideas, I think, stand behind what Jesus is saying here. Then he says to them, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Again, John highlights Jesus' use of pictures, illusions, imagery to illustrate particular points. When he's talking to Nicodemus, he uses the image of birth. When he's talking to the woman at the well, he uses the image of water. When he's talking to the crowd that's hungry, that he feeds, he says, I'm the bread of life. Here, he uses the imagery of sleep as a picture of death. But the disciples, like many of those that Jesus encounters, don't pick up on the imagery that he's using. They say, well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get better. It's fine. No big deal. No need to rush. So Jesus says to them instead plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now, how does Jesus know this? Well, for the same reason that he knows things in John chapter 1 that are happening where he is not actually physically present. He's God. He has supernatural knowledge. Lazarus is dead. And then he says a thing that might seem harsh, but we'll see a, a better as we understand better as we go through the chapter. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. How could Jesus say he's glad that he wasn't there to keep Lazarus from dying? From a human perspective, that seems callous and heartless. And how could he say that? But from a divine perspective, which is the one that Jesus wants us to have, how much greater is it that Lazarus dies that Jesus raises him from the dead, that the sorrow is turned to rejoicing, and that more believe that Jesus is God. 
Mary and Martha probably, as we see as we go through the chapter, would have preferred that their brother got better and did not die. But for us as Christians, we need to remember this important reality. Resurrection is better than never dying at all. Seeing God's power is better than not seeing God's power. Having to depend on God is better than thinking we can go it alone. We may not see it, we may not want it in our humanity, in our frailty, in our imperfect sight, but this is actually a better thing that Jesus is doing here. Thomas, I think, sums up what the rest of the disciples are thinking. Verse 16, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, some translations have the him capitalized, as in Jesus, and that's definitely a possibility. Another possibility is saying we're going to be dead like Lazarus is dead. Either of them would be legitimate. Most likely he's saying we're going to follow you, Jesus, but this is the end. We're all going to die. So when someone you know and love is sick, even to death, it does not mean that God has abandoned you. And I don't mean, I'm not trying to mock anyone who has this on their wall, but you're probably familiar with that little poem picture thing, the footprints in the sand, I carried you when there's only one set of footprints, I didn't leave you. I, not in that kind of fuzzy kind of idea. God is there all the time. He has not abandoned you if you know him as one of his people when someone that you love and care about is sick even to death. Further, it doesn't necessarily even mean that everyone around you has abandoned you, even though it can feel that way sometimes. As we'll see as we continue through the chapter, Mary is so overwhelmed by grief that she can't see past it. Martha, surprisingly, in light of the fact that we give Martha a hard time uh, and kind of look down on her. Well, she's the one who was busy, and Mary's the one who wanted to hear Jesus teaching. Martha's actually the one that demonstrates, I think, more faith in this chapter. And she believes that Jesus can do what he says that he will do. Even though we know God is still there, and even though at moments we can see that others are still there, when someone we love is sick, even to death, death tests our faith in God's goodness. Three times in this section, we see variations on why didn't you do something? We see the question first in verse 21. Or the, 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 not a question, but sort of an implied question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why weren't you here, Lord? Mary says a similar thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the people who are watching in verse 37, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? This is an important theme in this middle section, this idea that death tests our faith in God's goodness. It's not wrong to ask this question, why didn't God do this? Why didn't God make this person get better? Why didn't this situation go differently? It's not wrong to ask that question. The question is, what comes after? What's our answer after we ask the question? Jesus begins and tests Martha's faith. Lazarus is beyond human help. Verse 17, he'd been in the tomb four days. If Jesus had come right after Lazarus had died, do you know what people would have said? 
oh, he wasn't actually dead. It's just one of those weird situations where someone just was sort of in a coma and then they came back to life. Someone could easily say that. After four days, when the processes of death have set into the human body, there's no question that the person is gone. There's no human way to restore that person to life. Martha confronts Jesus and questions his delay. We read that in verse 21. But she adds this phrase to it, which is important. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. There seems to be in this uh, uh, indication that she's hopeful that Jesus can do something about the situation, even if she doesn't really expect that it's going to happen. So Jesus encourages her with the statement, your brother will rise again. She says, I know he will. Someday, someday he'll rise again. Jesus says, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, when Jesus makes this statement, we have the question of, is Jesus talking about death in the same way throughout those two verses? So when he says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, seems to be a contradictory statement. But when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and even if you die, you'll be raised, I think he's talking about physical death. And when he says, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, I think he's probably has more in mind spiritual death. Because I think that's the only way in which we can take these two statements is not contradicting each other, but rather supporting one another. So if we read it that way, then here's what Jesus is saying. If your physical life ends, but you know me, that's not the end for you. And if your faith is in me, nothing can separate you from me. That's the truth of Romans chapter 8. And so we have this tension that those who love and follow God can still physically die. But that is neither a permanent state, nor a hopeless condition, nor their final end. And I think that's the testimony of Scripture as a whole. And Jesus calls her then to affirm or reject this by saying, Do you believe this? I think this is the central question of this passage. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And like I said a few moments ago, Martha is looked down upon when we see her previous actions in the Gospels. But the reality is, in this instance, she expresses the greatest faith of all the groups of people who are present. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. This parallels Peter's confession of faith where he says that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Lord. And Jesus' response is, you're Peter, and upon this confession, upon you in connection with this confession, I will build my church. Great faith in the great power of God. The tension is relieved from Martha, although she doesn't yet know exactly what Jesus is going to do. 
She goes and, and calls her sister Mary and says, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now we don't see Jesus actually calling for Mary. So was she lying to her sister or is it just simply that we don't see Jesus' words recorded? It's probably better to understand it as the second. When she heard it, Mary got up quickly and was coming to him. Jesus isn't in the village yet. Mary hears Jesus is here. She rushes out. All the Jews say, oh, she's rushed out, the ones who have come to comfort her. We need to go check on her. We're going to follow her to the tomb. We can console her. We can weep together. So they are all coming now. Why did Martha tell Mary secretly that Jesus was there? Perhaps out of concern for Jesus' safety. And yet, the crowd of those who are in the house follows Mary to Jesus. Mary has the same response as Jesus tests her faith and that of the watching Jews. Why weren't you here, Lord? Jesus' response to her is somewhat different. The way in which he tests her faith, responds to her question, is to sympathize with her grief. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. This is another of these mysteries because the testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God in his perfection does not, he's not subject to the whims of circumstance like you and I are. So sometimes people will talk about the idea, theologians, that God is impassable, not driven back and forth by the passions, the feelings that you and I are sometimes uh, rage will come over us or sorrow will come over us or happiness will come over us and they just sort of like wash through us. God doesn't experience emotions in the same way. And yet Jesus as a human being, I think, did legitimately experience sorrow and grief as functions of his humanity that we see in this passage. And so when it says Jesus was moved and troubled, Jesus wept, I don't think it's just him acting that out. I think it's an expression of his genuine humanity. He is, in fact, a human being. So if he can experience things like hunger and thirst, he can also experience other aspects of humanity, like the feelings of grief, but in a way that is never sinful, in a way that is never uh, questioning or doubting God, as grief can be for us. How do Martha and Mary respond to Jesus' test of their faith? Martha makes a great statement of belief. Mary is overwhelmed by grief. The crowd is undecided but curious. What's going to happen next? We know that Jesus has done miracles in the past, and what happens next will affect all of them. In the end of the passage, we see that death gives an opportunity for God to glorify himself by means of resurrection power. Jesus begins by preparing for the miracle, verse 38. Jesus is deeply moved and he comes to the tomb and he says, remove the stone. In light of what we know about Jesus' experience of his own death and resurrection, think about what's going through his mind as the Son of God, knowing what he's going to experience coming to that tomb. 
in a short period of time, that's him. I think we think, oh great, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, all those, and that, that's true, that's in the story. But I don't think we think about the fact that here's Lazarus raised from the dead right before Jesus is crucified. Jesus comes to the tomb. Jesus says, roll away the stone. The people object. This is not a good idea. He's dead. It's interesting that Jesus has them do something just like he had the servants do something with his first miracle in Cana of Galilee. The turning the water to the wine. Jesus doesn't put the water in the water pots, but the servants do. Here, Jesus doesn't roll away the stone, although he certainly could have. He says, you do it. They object. Jesus responds with, didn't I say that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So I think the implication is Martha urges them to do this because that's the question he asked her. The text doesn't say that, so there's a possibility he just addresses the crowd and they do it, but it's quite possible Jesus turns and says, remember what I said to you? And Martha says, do what he says, which again would parallel the miracle at Cana of Galilee. Because isn't that what Jesus' mother said? Do whatever he tells you. It's a possibility. It's not something that I would you know, urge very strongly, but it's, it's fascinating to see the parallels between some of Jesus' miracles. So they remove the stone. And we think, okay, now what? Jesus doesn't do anything for a moment. He stops and he prays. And his prayer is fascinating. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so they may believe that you sent me. Why is Jesus praying? For the people who are watching. So he is teaching them an important truth. God hears his faithful servant, which interestingly goes along with a lot of the things he's been saying to them this whole time. God hears his faithful servant. I am God's faithful servant. I am obeying my Father. So the expectation is he's going to hear me. Just like when I prayed and distributed the loaves and fish, just like when I, when I prayed in these other instances, the Father hears me. Jesus cries with a loud voice. Which again, given the crucifixion that is about to take place in the book of John, where Jesus cries out with a loud voice and draws his last breath and finishes his work, here he cries out with a loud voice to accompany the work that he's doing, the work that he talked about in verse 9. Lazarus, come forth. Jesus is the creator, speaks life into one of his creation who has experienced death. Think if you're in that moment. What's going to happen? Don't think modern society, weird ideas about zombies and vampires and all of those sorts of things. That wouldn't have been what they were thinking. Here's the question. Not is Jesus God, because that's been pretty clear from all the miracles he done, he's done up to this point. 
how great of a power is he able to demonstrate? Water to wine? Yes. Healing someone who's sick? Yes. Feeding people with almost nothing? Yes. How great is Jesus' creative power? Can he restore life to one of his creatures who is dead? That's the question. And they're waiting, and they're standing there, and what happens? The man who had died came forth. How do we know that it's not a trick? Because he's still wrapped up in the grave clothes. He's, his head is wrapped, his body is wrapped. Jesus has to say, unbind him and let him go. He doesn't need those anymore. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. What's the response of the people to this? Verse 45, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. If you saw a miracle like this, what would your response be? Would you believe what you saw with your eyes? Or would your loyalty to the religious leaders win out over what you have clearly seen? Spiritual blindness or spiritual sight? That's the question. What's the response of the chief priests and Pharisees when they hear of what Jesus has done? Verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The chief priests and the Pharisees respond to the good and unquestionably powerful act of Jesus by saying, let's kill him. We'll get to that in a moment. Does that strike anyone else as ironic? We're going to talk about it in the next chapter too. They say in the next chapter, we're going to kill Jesus and we're going to kill Lazarus because we don't want anybody to contradict us. Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. You're going to kill him? Do you think that's going to work? Have any of the things you've done up to this point worked to limit his ministry, to silence him, to get the people not to pay attention to him? No. But in their schemes, in their plans, in their plots, they think we are going to... This is going to be the end. the end. We're going to silence him. This is going to be it. They fear Jesus' signs, and they see him, his continued pop popularity as a threat to their political power. Was it true that all people believe in them and the Romans would take away their place in their nation? Probably not. Had Jesus shown any aspirations to political power? No. When the crowd tries to come make him king by force after he feeds them with the loaves and fish, what does he do? He goes away. He's not interested in that. So this idea that Jesus is coming to threaten their political power is some 2,000 years too early. And what I mean by that is, Jesus is going to come back and reign as king, but this wasn't the time when he was coming to do it. The next little section is fascinating. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. This is not surprising. This is their attitude. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. From his perspective, he's saying, If we get rid of Jesus, we'll preserve our way of life. 
From God's perspective, look at the next little section, verse 51. He did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is John's comment on what's going on here. This raises a whole bunch of interesting questions that we could certainly discuss further tonight that... Here's someone who's clearly an unbeliever, yet in a position of religious authority, speaking a true thing, even a prophecy, about what God is going to do, but not really understanding all of it. So probably the closest parallel that we could find in Scripture would be that of Balaam's donkey. Or for that matter, Balaam, because he didn't even listen to the donkey. Here's someone who's not really having, probably Balaam's the better example, no inclination to follow God, off doing his own thing, and yet he says things that are true. He's supposed to curse the Israelites, and what does he do when he gets there? He ends up giving them a blessing because God makes him do it. When the high priest says, this man is going to die for the nation, he's speaking truth even though he doesn't realize it, even though he thinks it's something he's doing when it's really something God is doing. Verse 53, from that day together they planned to kill him. What's Jesus' response? Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the city near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. His time had not yet come, but it was drawing very near. It is not his own resurrection yet, but it is going to be shortly. The question is, that we have to deal with is, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? The Pharisees demonstrated great spiritual blindness. Their rage, their hatred of Jesus drove them to act this way. They should have repented, and yet they showed themselves, as Jesus had told them in the previous chapter, to be sons of the devil. You try to murder me? You want to lie against me, accuse me falsely? You're breaking the law because you are sinners. And they just reinforce the fact that Jesus' words were true. What about you and I? How far do you trust God? Are you like the disciples only seeing the bleakness of death? Someone you love draws near to death or even dies and all you see is there's death in this world and it's broken. That's true. But Thomas was blind to all the things Jesus had done up to this point. Yes, you're going to die. Whether it's when you go down to Judea, Thomas, whether it's 20 years in the future, you're going to die. But there's a whole lot more going on than just that one simple thing. Remember Jesus' power. There is hope. Even in death, there is hope. Now, that hope, I need to clarify, is only for those who believe in Jesus. Someone who dies not believing in Jesus has no confidence that they're going to go to be with Jesus. And that is probably one of the hardest truths you will ever have to tell someone. Because what we want to say is, you'll see that person again someday. Yeah, I know he was a drunk and he beat his wife and he committed adultery and all these sorts of things, but, but we want to believe the best, even about someone like that. And the reality is, for that person or for the guy that was the great neighbor but never trusted in Jesus, neither of them are with Jesus unless there's a point at which they encounter Jesus and believe in him. 
That's what the Bible teaches. We really are so strongly tempted so many times to water that down and say, eh, maybe. No, if, if someone you know and love does not believe in Jesus, they are condemned because they have rejected the only Son of God. The only way to God is through Jesus, not through anything else. Not through another church, not through a set of rituals, not through being a decent American citizen, not through military service, not through even great acts of personal sacrifice. List off whatever people give as their reason for thinking, God's going to let me in, that is not Jesus, and the answer is no. But if you know Jesus, and that person you know and love knows Jesus, and that person dies, there should not be despair. Not the attitude of Thomas. We're just going to die and that's it. Are you like Martha with her great statement of belief in Jesus as the Son of God with power to do whatever God desires? If that's you, keep believing that because that, I think, is the statement, the belief, the, the, the set of ideas that this passage is calling us to hold as our own. Jesus is the Son of God. He will raise people up both on the last day and has the power to do it every once between now and then. Are you like Mary, overwhelmed by grief? What do we see Jesus doing in this passage? Jesus recognizes her grief and comforts her. We see in 2 Corinthians 1 that we as believers have opportunity to do that for one another. Are you like the divided crowd, some of whom believed and some of whom said, no, we're going to stay on the side of the Pharisees because we're worried about what happens if we don't. Sometimes you believe, sometimes you show allegiance to this world. I think the book of Psalms would call you to do this. Unite your heart to fear God's name. It's a prayer that David gives. My heart is divided. My heart often wanders. My heart wants to go this way and that. James says it this way. From the same mouth comes forth blessing and cursing, love of God and hatred of fellow man, sin and righteousness. It shouldn't be that way, but that's sometimes the way it is in this world. God needs to change that in our hearts. So if you're going back and forth, you're like that crowd. You need to encounter Jesus' power and follow him wholeheartedly. This passage calls us to believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. If you do believe in him, you have nothing to fear from death. If you do not, then you have everything to fear. The people who despair that you encounter in our world, who have, who have had increasing waves of what our society would call depression, of the realities of suicide, of all of these sorts of things, why is that increasing in the last year and a half? Because everything that we have used to distract ourselves we're going to go on vacation. We're going to spend time with friends. We're going to eat good food. We're going to buy lots of stuff. All that went away and stopped for a good number of months. You weren't supposed to go anywhere. You couldn't go on a trip. You couldn't spend time with your friends. You couldn't eat good food. Sometimes the food you wanted to buy wasn't there. We still have periodic issues with that when certain things in certain places. 
the entertainment you use to distract yourself from the sobering realities of life and death, they stopped making movies for a while. They stopped producing new music shows. All of those things that we fill or try to fill the void in our souls with, when they go away, you know what happens? People look at life and it is bleak. There's the humanistic perspective on life that things are getting better and better, which is a really stupid idea. Because anybody who looks around recognizes things are not getting better and better. And I'm not talking about, you know, 50 years ago, people were good neighbors. I'm not talking about that kind of thing, although sometimes that's true. I'm talking about the fact that we look at our world today and things are broken. Why do people do foolish things? Why do people do harmful things to one another? Why is there division and hatred and all those sorts of things? It's not because we all just need to have a group hug and agree that those people over there are right. That's not the answer. The problem is sin, and the solution is Jesus, and the alternative is death. But with Jesus, there's resurrection, and there's life. So the question you and I need to ask each other, ourselves, the people that we meet, do you believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life? If you do, what, what effect is that going to have? You're going to plan for retirement, but recognize that's not your only hope. You're going to be willing to share what you have because you're not going to take it with you. And there's far greater things waiting for you in God's presence. We sang about that this morning. Uh, if you're a child of God, you don't really care if you have a a huge house or a small dwelling on this earth, we shouldn't care about it, much, about it as much as we do because we have a place with God in heaven. We'll get into that more when we get to John 14. If you believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life, your goal will not be to preserve your physical life at any and all costs. Because you know what? You can eat right, and exercise right and never do anything dangerous you're still gonna die I don't say that to be mean or heartless or down on things it's just a fact but if you know Jesus as the resurrection and the life when you die you will be with him it's not something we rush. It's not something we obsess over. It's not something that we're trying to get there as quick as possible. But it's a reality that we can face with confidence because we know that it's not the end. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let that truth sink into your soul. If you've never turned to him and believed that he is, do that. If you have and you've forgotten that reality and you've become overwhelmed with all the busyness of this world and forgotten what an amazing truth that is, think about it some more. If you're believing it today, keep believing it because it's what God has said. Jesus is the resurrection and life. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for these truths. Help us to consider them this week. In Christ's name. Amen.